Children are dismissed for Children's Church. Please open your Bibles to Psalm 51. Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is probably one of the more well-known psalms in the Psalter. Um, It's one of my favorite psalms when I first became a Christian. Um, Like no other psalm, it really deals with the brokenheartedness of dealing with sin and and coming to grips with coming to God and how to be restored. And, And so the title of this morning's message is A Repenter's Guide. A Repenter's Guide. As we think of the Psalms being given to us, God showing us how spirit-filled men and women approach him in prayer, we've seen how does a spirit-filled person rejoice? This is how. How does a spirit-filled person suffer and long for God? And Psalm 42 and 43 showed us how. Well, if we ask the question, how does a born-again, spirit-filled person deal with their sin? Well, Psalm 51 is written to show us how. It is a repenter's guide Psalm 51. We're going to read it in full and then dive in. Psalm 51. To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being. You teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God, or a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion, and your good pleasure build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Lord God, we just pray that you would instruct us from your word. You would give the increase, Lord. Help us to learn how to deal with our sin in a way that pleases you, a way that honors you. Lord, and if there are any here today who, who need to be dealing with sin in their life, Lord, I pray that you'd bring conviction and grace that we could come out the other side of this place where we are praising you where we are joyful with a song on our lips and not a heavy heart in Jesus name amen now this psalm um, is one of the few psalms that gives us very very specific 
information about the context in which it was written. On the account is the infamous account of David and Bathsheba. And if you'll keep your thumb in Psalm 51, turn back to uh, 2 Samuel. And the story unfolds in chapters 11 and 12, and we'll just sort of skim through it. David is now king of Israel. The end of 1 Samuel, Saul dies. Beginning of 2 Samuel, David is made king. The Lord has established his kingdom. The Lord has been faithful to him. And in 2 Samuel 11, verse 1, in the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him in all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. And this is our first setup that something's amiss. Kings are supposed to be going out to war. David holds back. Frequently, idleness, sloth leads to sexual immorality. And it does with David. And as he's got nothing to do in, the, in, the, in his <coughs> castle or his home, he's up on the roof, because up on the roof is where you'd go in the, to get cool. And he spies a woman taking a bath. And he, and he is attracted to her. And he sends for her. And she comes in. And in what probably amounted to something like date rape, he slept with her. Because how do you say no to the king after all? And he sends her home. And, and she lets him know a little bit later on that she is pregnant. And so David now, his sin leads to sin. Um, he's already, he's, he's not really fulfilled his job as king, which led to temptation, which led to adultery and fornication. Now, he summons her husband Uriah home. And he tries twice to get Uriah to sleep with Bathsheba so that Uriah will think it's his child. But Uriah is such a noble man. He refuses to take any pleasure, any comfort deprived from the rest of his platoon, if you will, the rest of his soldiers. And he sleeps at David's doors post. And yet, in spite of this type of loyalty, in spite of this type of honor, David, when he can't cover his sin, erase, attempts to erase his sin, and he actually puts the letter in Uriah's hand to take back to Joab and the generals, and basically comes up with a plan where the army's going to make a push, Joab's going to be out front, and then they're going to pull back, and Joab will be left to die. And it works so far as it goes. And Uriah is killed. I mean, just think of the betrayal. His loyalty that he showed and his king has him murdered. And so news comes of this. David waits the appropriate time and he and Bathsheba get married and you know, no one's the wiser. Who's to say this wasn't Uriah's child? Who's to say anything amiss happened? And then nine months go by, at least, because the child is born. The child is never named this child of David and Bathsheba. And no one says anything, even though courtiers must know, Joab knew. There were probably a half dozen or so people who at least had half the story. And so the Lord, and get this, the Lord loves his children enough that he will deal with their sin. He loves his children enough that he will not leave them in sin. David is hardening his heart. David in this psalm will talk about the agony he was in when God's hand was heavy upon him. The Lord loves him too much to leave him there. The Lord loves him too much to let him be happy in his sin. And so he sends Nathan the prophet to him. And Nathan is a courageous man because he's going to the king after all. And he sort of sets him up. And he tells him that great story. Let's look at chapter 12. The Lord sent Nathan to David and he came to him and said to him, 
There were two men in a certain city, one rich, the other poor. The rich man had many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which, they had bought, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and, he gave, and it grew up with him, and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. When David's, then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As sure as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And then in one of these great turnaround moments, Nathan looks at David and points the finger in his face and says, David, you are the man. Slightly different take on you're the man. You are the man. And Nathan doesn't stop there. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah, and if this was too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord? To do what is evil in his sight, you have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me, and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. You shall, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. You did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. And this gets fulfilled when Absalom mounts a coup and drives David out of Jerusalem and then sets up a tent on top of David's home and goes in to sleep with his wives in the sight of all Israel as a way of despoiling and shaming his father. This will literally be fulfilled a little later in um, 2 Samuel. And so what does David do in this rebuke, this judgment? An amazing thing happens. Repentance comes out of his mouth. Verse 13, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And then an even more amazing thing happens. The Lord extends forgiveness. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because this deed you have uttered, you, in this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord. The child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house and the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah bore to David and he became sick. Therefore David sought God on behalf of the child and David fasted and went in and lay on the ground all night. The elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. On the seventh day, the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. They said, behold, while the child was alive, we spoke to him and he did not listen to us. How then can we say to him, the child is dead? He, he may go do some, himself some harm. But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to the servants, Is the child dead? And they said, He is dead. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. And this is the context, if you'll turn back now to Psalm 51. 
in which Psalm 51 is written. And so I want to encourage you as we study through this that I don't care how great your sin is, I don't care how dark your secret is, God's grace and his forgiveness is sufficient. David went on to become a faithful and good king in Israel. There was still judgment. There were still consequences of his actions, but his relationship with the Lord was restored. He went on to write hymns and psalms and, and scripture and used mightily of God. But he also left us this instruction. See, David could have repented privately. He could have resolved himself privately with the Lord, and instead he wrote Psalm 51 and gave it to God's people to learn from. And so our goal today is to learn from this we're going to follow the psalm in six sections, and the bullet points are sort of applying what he's doing for us. You know, how, do you, how do you deal with grievous sin? How do you deal with hardening your heart for months, maybe years? That coldness that settles in when you haven't been dealing with your sin for a long time and you feel very distant from God. What do you do? And what is repentance? I mean, that's, that's a question I think some people misunderstand and, and wrestle with. And I think we'll see all that as we dive in. And so verses 1 to 2 we'll look at first is request for mercy. Request for mercy. David writes, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. And, and this sort of first section sums up the request of the psalm. What do I need? I need mercy. What do I need? I need my sins blotted out. That's what I need. And what's amazing is, is David understands simultaneously that he is without any claims for mercy. He doesn't try to argue that the Lord owes it to him. He doesn't say, remember how faithful I was all those years past. I know this was bad, but really, in the scope of things, it's not that big of a deal. He cries out for mercy, and mercy at its core is something you don't deserve. You, you can't be owed mercy. It stops being mercy if it's obligated. It stops being mercy if it's owed. And so he cries out, have mercy on me, and yet he appeals to God's covenant love. David has learned the secret of brokenhearted, gutsy guilt. Brokenhearted gutsy guilt. You don't need to turn there, but this notion of gutsy guilt is something that I got from John Piper. I, I find very helpful in my own walk. It's based on Micah 7, 8 through 9, and I'm going to read his brief explanation of this concept. To the fallen saint who knows the darkness is self-inflicted and feels the futility of looking for hope from a frowning judge. When you know that God is displeased with you, he's saying, when you know that you did it to yourself, you brought this on yourself. The Bible gives a shocking example of gutsy guilt. It pictures God's failed prophet beneath a righteous frown, bearing his chastisement with brokenhearted boldness. And then he quotes Micah 7, 8 through 9, which says, Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall arise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. He will bring me out to the light. This is courageous contrition, gutsy guilt. The saint has fallen. The darkness of God's indignation is on him. He does not blow it off, but waits 
He throws in the face of his accuser the confidence that his indignant judge will please plead his cause and execute justice for and not against him. This is the application of justification to the fallen saint. Brokenhearted, gutsy guilt. And this is an important thing to get because I think there's two errors here that we can fall into if we don't get this balance right. On the one hand, we could fall into the notion of penance. You ever see a dog who's peed on the carpet and you come in and he's just sort of in the corner with his tail between his legs? And sometimes our guilt and shame can cause us to do that. And we just sort of, I can't talk to God in prayer right now, not after what I've done. I'll just sort of wait over here for a bit. And you ignore the admonition of Hebrews 4 to boldly approach the throne of grace in time of need. Yet on the other hand, there's an equal error, which is to sort of play fast and loose with sin. Yes, I killed somebody. Yes, I committed adultery. I'm sorry. See, God's so good. He just forgives. And I've seen that as well. I've seen both errors. I've seen the person who's so weighed down with guilt that it drives them from and not to God. And I've also seen plenty of people deal flippantly with sin. A friend of mine is, is going through some difficulties at his church, and one of the elders at his church um, has been, is, is a uh, contractor who's been paying employees under the table for years and going through elaborate efforts not to get caught. And when he finally came to light, um, he was wondering what would happen. The elders talked about it, and he remained the chairman of the elders because he said he was sorry and wouldn't do it again. And that can be sort of taking sin too lightly. And so you can wrestle with this balance of, on the one hand, sort of flippantly, hey God, sorry, thanks, and on, which I think is not what we see here. But on the other side, this notion of penance, and if you push that even further, even this notion of self-salvation, I've got to earn God's forgiveness. I've got to do something to get right and back with him. Instead, we need gutsy guilt. We need to feel the weight of our sin. We need to understand it grieves God. We need to understand its ugliness and its weight, and yet we need to boldly hold fast to grace. And we see that here in verse 1. Have mercy, which is to say, I don't deserve forgiveness. I have no legitimate ground. I have no valid argument for why you should be kind to me. But I will appeal not to me, but to you and your character according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. See, Lord, I know who you are, and you're merciful. I know who you are, and you have covenant love. And because of that, I will plead, not me, but you. Have mercy on me because of who you are, not because of who I am. Brokenhearted, gutsy guilt. And second, we need to recognize what is our greatest need, our truly greatest need. You know, David could be asking for all sorts of things. He's had a child die. He's been promised that the sword will not depart from his house. You know, now the public knows. Oh, Lord, please stop the gossip and slander. Oh, Lord, please remove the consequences of my action. But David is zeroing in on one thing and one thing only. This whole psalm is a focused request for forgiveness and restoration. David doesn't get distracted by anything else. You know, sometimes our sin has consequences. And as a pastor in counseling, I'll deal with people. They've sinned. There are consequences. And they can't get their eyes off the consequences. And there's a place for that. But first and foremost, get your eyes on God and your truly greatest need. What you need is forgiveness. What you need is restoration. 
And, and for someone who's born again, this isn't judicial forgiveness. Let me explain what I mean. David is not saying, I fear going to hell. Please pardon me in that sense. He is already a forgiven man. He is already justified. If you have put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will never face that type of judgment. However, there is still familial or family forgiveness. Nothing my children will do will ever cause me to ultimately reject them. But if Abner or Sophie are sinful, especially if they're mean to their mommy, there is going to be some tension between us until they ask for forgiveness. They need forgiveness. There is an offense. It's not not going to bring on the judgment of get out of the house, but it is going to affect our relationship. And it may even bring in discipline. And so the same is true with God and his children. Yes, you're forgiven. Yes, Jesus died on the cross for your sins. And yes, you still need to ask God to forgive you. Because relationally, there's still some stuff between you and God, potentially. That's an important thing to grasp. And that is our number one need. So, David speaks of his sin. And you'll see these triplets. He speaks of his sin as his iniquity, his transgression, his sin. And he needs blotting out, washing, and cleansing. That's what he needs. The notion of blot out is to wipe away clean. Wash is the notion of fulling, of taking, they don't have laundry soap back then, so they take garments and they just put it in water and rub it against things. And, you know, you've even seen those buckets with the board and and that's how you clean. He needs to be wrung and scrubbed and cleaned. And cleansing is the notion of preparing for sacramental holiness. It's a uh, term from Leviticus about preparing to worship God. I need a full cleansing. He's stacking the terms. It's not that he's trying to specify a three-step process. He just needs the whole package. He's not trying to distinguish things with sin and iniquity and uh, transgression. Again, he's just trying to get the full orbitness of it. Which then brings us to our second point. Repentance from sin. Repentance from sin. Three to six A. He says, For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being. Three things here. The first, confess your sin for what it truly is. Confess your sin for what it truly is. We see this in verse 3. Now, the English word confess means to say with, to agree with. Con, with, fess, to speak. And so it holds true in Greek and Hebrew. To confess is to agree with a higher standard. And so I want to start from and explain how confession and repentance work together. See, when we sin, we believe a lie. Somewhere in David's, you know, mulling around on the rooftop, his heart said to him, it wouldn't be so bad for you to take her into your bed. It wouldn't be such a bad thing. After all, you've been through some hard times, and you are king. Something like that. And somewhere, David's will said, yeah, yeah, you know, I, th- I don't think it's that big of a deal. And so now he's facing this way. He's agreeing with the lies of his heart. His heart is selling an advertising sales pitch and his will agrees. And then what happens is actions flow out of that belief. 
and he takes her into his bed and he murders her husband. Then Nathan comes and confronts him. And repentance is that inward change in our will and disposition where we go from holding on to and believing a lie to believing the truth and, and receiving the truth. And so repentance is not an act. It's not a work. What it is is an inward change where I was believing. I was pursuing. I was holding on to a lie. And now I've let that go. And now I'm believing and holding on to and, and living the truth. And in both situations, fruit is born. Because he believed the lie, he slept with Bathsheba. He murdered her husband. And because he now believes the truth. Confession comes out of his mouth because confession is simply now, now that I'm believing the truth, I will speak the truth. I will agree with God about what he says about my sin. See, before I wasn't agreeing with God. Before, David disagreed with God. God said, don't cover your neighbor's wife. David said, this is an exception. God said, don't kill. David said, this is understandable. David was disagreeing with God. And then his actions were flowing out of that. And now, he repents, and he confesses with his mouth. He agrees with what God says. The way God describes his actions is now the way he describes his actions. That's confession. This is what 1 John 1.9 is talking about. If we are confessing our sins regularly, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Confess your sin for what it truly is. And this means don't call your sin something other than what God calls it. Sometimes a really good way to, to work on unpacking confession is to do a little Bible study on the sin you've been struggling with. You know, if God calls it A, you don't want to call it B. If God calls it anger and wrath, you don't want to call it frustration. If God calls it wickedness and fornication, you don't want to call it an accident. You want to agree with God about what he says about it, which presupposes you know what God says about it. So here David says, for I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. He's calling it what it is. And then he moves on against you. You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And he goes from confessing his sin. We now need to see that our sin is first and foremost against a holy God. And this, this verse trips some people up. How can David dare to say, against you and you only have I sinned? I mean, imagine you're Uriah the Hittite's father. And imagine that you're aware of what's been going on. And you hear David singing this song. You receive a copy of this psalm. And you are outraged. David murdered my son. Stole his wife. Betrayed the trust of his soldiers. And then he says, against you, you only have I sinned? Well, he wronged all sorts of people. But only God is the judge. Only God marks sin and iniquity. And so the only way we can incur judgment is by breaking God's law and in his sight. And all of the rights that we have derive and are derivative from God. Um, my wife had to write an essay in a Spanish class about human rights and and one of the points she made was, without God, there are no human rights. Why is it wrong to murder? It's not because the people are so wonderful and valuable. According to Genesis 9, murder is wrong because the man that you would strike down bears the image of the living God. 
How dare you, how dare I, dishonor the image of God by striking down our neighbor? That's why murder is wrong. It is a borrowed dignity. It is a borrowed value. It's not inherent to us. It's not that these are such wonderful people that you would dare not do that. It's that he is such a wonderful God and they kind of look a little like him. You got to honor that. That's how David can say against you and you only have I sinned. Thirdly, don't minimize or excuse our guilt. Be honest and transparent. Again, verse 5 sometimes, I think, trips people up. Moving into that, he says that you will be justified in your words, blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. What he's saying is this. Nathan just came and gave David an earful of judgment. And David's saying, you're right. No contest. I don't, I don't disagree. You're right. You are justified in your words, blameless in your judgment. Everything Nathan said, spot on. You are right. I offer no excuses. I'm not, and David's not trying to blame shift. In fact, when he says that he was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did his mother conceive him, he's not trying to offer a cop-out. It's not as if he's saying, it's hardly my fault after all I was born a sinner. Rather, what he's saying is, you know, Lord, this type of wickedness is the type of thing that I've been doing since I was conceived. This is the type of stuff that's been going on in my heart and in my mind as far back as I can go. It is my nature. It is who I am in my core. I'm not a good person who sometimes does bad things. Rather, I am a bad person through and through. And so when I do bad things, my nature is just coming out. See, this is setting up his request for a new heart. And this is a radically important piece for us to understand because if you think of yourself as primarily a good person who occasionally does bad things, the remedy you need will be small. Your Savior will be small. If you understand that through and through, every layer, as deep in as you go, to the very heart, the center of our being, is sick, twisted, lies. Who can know it? If you understand that the center of our being is not goodness, but rebellion, then you, like David, will cry out for a new heart. So don't seek to minimize or excuse your guilt. And be honest and transparent. David, in the last line here in verse 6, is saying what God wants is transparency. God wants truth. He wants what's on the outside to represent what's on the inside. And that wasn't the case for David. For at least a year, David was acting like everything was okay. Inwardly, he was holding down and this cover-up of this murder and adultery. And outwardly, it was business as usual. And he's saying, God wants something different. God wants the inside to reflect the outside, the outside to reflect the inside. And that brings us now into point three, restoration with God. We've seen a request for mercy, repentance from sin, and now restoration with God. And here, our English translations, I think, um, could do a little better job. I checked most of them, and except for Young's literal translation, I couldn't find a one that reflected the verb shifts. Up to this point, David has been making pleas, petitions, imperative verbs. Forgive me. Blot out my sin. Wash me. Here, it shifts to future verbs. You will. You will. You will. You will. See, David knows the character of God. He knows God's covenant love, and he knows that when God's child repents and confesses his sin, he knows what the living God will do. The living God will forgive. So let me read it, putting the next verses in that future tense. 
You will teach me wisdom in the secret heart. You will purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. You will wash me and I will be whiter than snow. You will let me hear joy and gladness. You will let the bones that you've broken rejoice. You will hide your face from my sins and you will blot out all my iniquities. Isn't it wonderful that David takes courage and hope in the fact that God will do this thing? So it's hard to look sin in the face. It's hard to call it what it is. It's hard to strip aside all the pretense and excuses and speak frankly about our sin. But when we do that, we come out the other side to forgiveness. I think a lot of times people struggle with this because they're not really willing to be honest about their sin. They've they got excuses. They've, we've got Christian terms for sin. We never use it for other people's sin. Other people have got a temper. I get a little annoyed. You know? Other people are late. I'm busy. You know? Or peeved. You got even like further step off words. I wasn't angry. I was just a little peeved. You know? And you got to speak honestly. Use biblical categories. I mean, whenever I'm doing any counseling, one of the first things I try to do is put the situation, and I'd encourage you, put your situation, put your sin in biblical categories. Words your translation of the Bible uses. Speak of it that way. There's a certain honesty and a certain frankness, a certain health that comes with that. And so, in restoration now, David earnestly seeks cleansing and healing from God, and he anticipates it. The very thing I need, the very thing I was pleading for in the first half of the psalm, you will do. Purging me with hyssop. Hyssop was one of the things a leper had to receive after he was ceremonially cleansed. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Saying, Lord, if you set about to forgive somebody, they're going to be forgiven. You set about to cleanse somebody, they're going to be cleansed. You wash somebody, they're washed. He's just affirming, God, you can do this. You're going to do this. I know you. I know your covenant love. And as great as my sin is, I am confident that you're going to do this for me. And earnestly seek forgiveness from God. Now, this is, this is a striking thing. In verse 9, usually the phrase, God hiding his face, is a, is a representation of his anger. And so, for instance, in Psalm 13, verse 1, the psalmist writes, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? It's very likely that David had been experiencing the effects of the Lord hiding his face from him these last nine months or so. And now he turns the imagery around. Hide your face not from me, but from my sins. And blot out all my iniquities. Just wipe them away. You know, and this is, this is the language that the word pictures of the New Testament. Colossians 2, 13 to 14 says, And you who are dead in your trespasses... And the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling, by erasing the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. I need the record wipes clean. I don't need some touch-up paint. I don't need a self-help video. I need pardon. I need absolution. I need the removal of my guilt. And now, point four, David cries out for renewal and transformation inwardly. His first need is the sin that is hampering his relationship with God. 
you're here today and, and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ or if you do but you're far from him, your first need is to confess your sin, to repent of your sin, to seek the Lord's forgiveness. Your second need is renewal and transformation inwardly. And here, we need to prayerfully attack the root of our sin. The root of our sin. David cries out again now, create me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. See, what David knows, he's just confessed previously. The reason he does the things he does is not because he made a mistake. It's his nature. It's his nature to sin. He was conceived in iniquity. And if that's the case, and it is, if we are through and through depraved, then what we need is not touch-up paint, but a heart transplant. Jesus says it this way in Mark 7, 20 to 23. What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, and adultery, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, evil, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these things come from within. And they defile a person. David has just removed the guilt, but what he's saying is, Lord, unless you change me inwardly, it's going to happen again. Or something like this. The bad tree is going to keep bearing bad fruit until you change it at the root. And so he cries out, he needs a new heart. And don't skip over this. The temptation here is for us to jump over this and just go to doing things. If God doesn't change our hearts, if he doesn't change us inwardly, we will just keep bearing the same bad fruit. And so David prayerfully attacks the root of his sin, his insides. And he can't do that himself. Only God can do that. Only God creates things. And David cries out to God, Oh God, would you create me a clean heart? Oh God, would you renew a right spirit within me? Do not cast me away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Um, this next focus, prioritize your fellowship and communion with the Lord. Now, again, sometimes we trip up over this phrase, take not your Holy Spirit from me. I thought you can't lose your salvation. You cannot. But remember, we are on this side of Pentecost. And at Pentecost, in Acts 2, is when God sent out his Holy Spirit to all of his people, to all flesh, so that anyone who puts their faith and trust in Jesus Christ receives the gift of the Holy Spirit. But prior to Pentecost, that was not so. In the Old Testament, the Lord did not send his Holy Spirit to all of his children, but rather only to special individuals to equip them for ministry. So when Saul became king, the Holy Spirit rushed upon him. And then... And in 1 Samuel 16, 14, now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. See, David had seen this done. David is not saying, please don't damn me. If, if you or I were to lose the Holy Spirit, we would lose our salvation, which is why we cannot do that. In David's situation, the Holy Spirit represents his fellowship with God, his qualification and power for ministry. When Saul was supposed to do the job of being king, God gave him help. He sent his spirit to empower and enable him. When God had rejected Saul, he took back the help. David is afraid that the Lord will do the same thing to him. I can't do this on my own, God. I need your help. I need your fellowship. I need your gifting. Please don't take your Holy Spirit from me like you did Saul. Don't cast me away from your presence. 
and restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. You need to seek your joy in the Lord and his salvation. Again, not a word about please take the sword away from my family. Please, I don't want to bear the consequences. Wasn't the death of a baby enough? Not a word of that. I want you. I want your fellowship. I want your spirit. Please, please don't let me go through another nine months of not being in fellowship with you. Please don't take your Holy Spirit from me. He's seeking his joy, not in his circumstances, but in God and his salvation. And then finally, we come to the response. Point five. Response one, teaching, songs, and praise. Three points. We'll move quickly. Number one, don't hide the Lord's deliverance. Teach others. Verse 13. Then, on the other side of this forgiveness and restoration and transformation, then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. How on earth is David going to do that? Well, step one is by writing the 51st Psalm. You know, you could imagine this to be a sore subject for David. You know, a bit touchy. I don't really want to talk about that whole Bathsheba thing. Can you imagine the humility of the man who is king, wants to be honored by his people, who writes publicly, writes the psalm heading, and gives this to the corporate people of Israel so they can sing. Because he understands the greatness of God's salvation and he doesn't want to hold it in. And he wants to teach others to learn from his example. To me, one of the most genuine marks of true repentance is is how people are afterwards. Is this a subject you never bring up? Or do people look for opportunities? Let me tell you about how good God is. Let me tell you about how faithful he was to me when I fell. Don't, Don't hide your light under a bushel. Don't hide the Lord's deliverance. Teach others. Jesus tells this to Peter in Luke 22, 31 and 32. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. You're going to fall, but not break. You're going to get back up, and when you do, go strengthen your brothers. If God's going to restore us, he's going to restore us so that we can pass on the grace he's given to us. Secondly, praise must always follow pardon. If you pay attention to the way the worship service order is set up, what you'll frequently note is that the very first song we sing after announcements is usually a song of confession. There's a reason for that. Because that's the order we get from Psalm 51. Read the next verse. Verse 14, deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, then, or and my tongue, will sing aloud of your righteousness. See, praise follows pardon. God isn't looking for people with unconfessed sin to praise him. Praise follows pardon. So I like to, when I, when I get a chance to pick the order of the songs, to put songs of confession first, setting up the songs of praise the pattern we get from scripture. Oh Lord, when you deliver me from blood guiltiness, oh God, my tongue then will sing aloud of your righteousness. And the other piece of that is if God has redeemed you, if God has forgiven you, praise him. Praise him publicly. Praise him privately. Praise him. And then we look at the fact that obedience is no substitute for repentance and restoration. Now this is huge. This is enormous. If you have your Old Testament, 
the law, the books of Moses and the unpacking of the ceremonial law receives the largest chunk of any one topic in the Old Testament. I mean, just page for page, word for word, it's ginormous. And David doesn't misunderstand. Some people think that the Old Testament saints were saved by keeping the law. They weren't. Just, if you think that, that's, that's wrong. And this psalm proves it. Because look what David says. Verse 16. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. And you can imagine the Levites going, Whoa, whoa, David, what do you mean? What David's saying is this. All of those sacrifices, and all of those offerings, and all of those anointings, and cleansings, and scrubbings, and everything the law gave is not the real thing God's after. David understood that. The sacrifices of God are broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. David understood that those sacrifices and those washings and those offerings and those ceremonies, they were all pointing at the real thing. They weren't the real thing itself. This is what the Pharisees missed. They thought if they went through the ritual, they could skip the repentance. They thought if they went through the ritual and the actions, they could skip and pass over dealing with their sin. And what David's saying in no uncertain terms is don't skip over this step. If you think to yourself, I won't really repent of my sin. I won't really deal with it. I'll just go start doing stuff. God's not going to want it. You go read Malachi. And God just says, just stop. Stop with the offering. Stop with the holy days. Close the doors. I don't want it. My people are not serving me with their hearts. Obedience is no substitute for repentance and restoration. If you've got an issue with God, you've got to deal with it. You've got to deal with it. You've got to confess it. You've got to repent. You've got to plead for mercy and forgiveness. You've got to receive it. You've got to be restored with the Lord. Then you can move on to response part two. Corporate growth and holiness. Do good design. In your good pleasure, build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. And you've got to recognize that all individual sin has corporate effects. Some people have suggested that these last two verses were added by some other party after the exile. Why is David talking about building Jerusalem? I, I don't buy that. Rather, David understands, and if you read through the book of Kings and Chronicles, you'll see this clear as day. As goes the king, goes the nation. So Israel's a good king, the nation becomes faithful. Israel has a bad king, and he leads the nation into wickedness. And so David, I think, is starting to click. There's been at least a year where I've been hardening my heart in wickedness and sin. What effect will that have on the nation? What effect will that have on people who are watching my life, know that I'm the Lord's anointed, are trying to learn how to please God for me, and they start imitating me? What's going to happen then? Oh God, do good to Zion. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. All of our sin has corporate consequences. Paul talks about sin like leaven spreading through the loaf in 1 Corinthians 5. It's never a private matter. According to Paul in, in Romans 12, 15, we are individually members of one another. If I have a cold, my whole body has a cold. You know, my, my, my pinky finger has never had a cold all by itself. It just hasn't happened. It doesn't happen. And finally, obedience is always the fruit 
of repentance and restoration. You see, it can't replace it. See, repentance and restoration is the root that obedience flows out of. In case you thought David was just cutting out the first five books of his Bible, he wasn't. After I've confessed, after you've restored me, after I've sung your praise, after you've given me a new heart, after all that, then you will delight in right sacrifices. Those things that the law told me to do, I will do. But I'll do them as a result, as a consequence of restoration and not to get it. I hear that. You don't obey God to get forgiveness and restoration. You obey God because you already have forgiveness and restoration. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up for our closing song. This is, this is an important topic, and we've gone a little long, but I think it's well worth it. There's no more important topic than dealing with sin and, and being united with God. And, and I just if you, plead with anyone here that if you're not tight with the Lord this morning, that you would find the time to get right with Him. You wouldn't skip over confession and repentance. That you would deal with what you need to deal with to get right with him. Don't, don't kid yourself and think, oh, I'll go do things for God, then we'll be okay. There's no, there's no skipping over it. There's only one thing God is after, and it's your heart. And as we're about to sing, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a contrite heart. That is what God is after, and you cannot, you cannot replace that, skip it over, or make up for that if it's not there. Getting right with God, dealing with your sin, has to start with a broken spirit and a contrite heart. And the good, great news is that God will never, never, no matter how bad the sin, he will never turn such a heart away from him. Please stand.